Matthew 5 this morning. Matthew 5 is where we'll be. I enjoy a good irony, something that's ironic, and I think one of the ones that makes me laugh in the world today is the American obsession with the British royal family. You don't laugh because you are obsessed with the British royal family. (laughs) Didn't we sort of begin this whole little American experiment with frustration with the British royal family? Isn't that how this thing started, you know? So now you go into Meyer, Kroger, wherever, and there's nothing but pictures of the British royal family on all the magazines. They're everywhere. Um, You know, when the, the latest wedding happened, Harry and Meghan, I guess, are their names. I don't really follow it that closely, but it was like a national event here in the 13 colonies, you know? Love that stuff. Now, one of the the most fascinating things about the royal family, and I think this is probably why we're so drawn to it, is we obviously don't have anything like that here. And when you see the royal family, there's very much um, a set of expectations for members of the royal family. You know, they're, they're expected to dress in a certain way according to a particular event that they're going to, right? They're expected to carry themselves publicly in a certain way. You know, there's, there's this whole demeanor and attitude and, you know, just dress and, and speech, all of it is dictated and is controlled, and there's a certain manner that they carry themselves with in life. It's very much a, a way of being that befits their status as a member of the royal family, right? Even if you marry into the royal family, now you have those set of expectations for you and how you live your life and in what you do, and if you deviate from that at all, it's news uh, in the UK and very much here, you know, uh, it's news apparently. Um, there are things that are appropriate for you as a member of the royal family, and then there are other things that are beneath your position as a person who is a part of the British royal family. I think you could, you could summarize the way that members of the royal family are to live with be who you are. They are supposed to act according to their status, right? Now, I think the Christian ethic in the New Testament could be summarized that way, the same way, be who you are. That's essentially what the Apostle Paul teaches. That's what the Gospels teach us. You and I have been objectively redeemed by God. We have been bought out of sin. We have been brought into God's family. And now there is a way of being, there is a way of living and of acting and of carrying ourselves that befits that status. And the gospel writers, and certainly the apostle Paul, the way Paul tells us to live is he says, listen, this is who you are. You are in Christ. You are redeemed from sin. He preaches the gospel to us, and then he says, okay, now that you know that, now that you know those truths, that you understand who you are, now, this is what that looks like. Here's the appropriate way to live based on who you are and your status. We are to be who we are. 
And so you can see from that how important it is that we know who we are. And that's why Paul continually says to us, this is who you are, this is who you are, this is who you are. We tend to forget it. It leaks out and we need to be reminded of who we are and then the actions that flow and the attitudes that flow from that status of who we are. Proper grasp of our standing in Christ as his children ought to lead us to a certain way of living. Now, all of that matters in the Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount because we've been looking at what it means to live the good life, according to Jesus here. And the good life means being who you are. You are objectively saved. You are brought, you are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light as kingdom disciples. And these are the qualities that should be appropriate for you and that you should be growing in as a member of that kingdom. Verses 3 through 12, the Beatitudes, spell out for us the virtues that are required and that make up disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. We're to grow in these virtues. And here's the thing about those character qualities that we've looked at over the last few weeks. Those cannot remain isolated from the world. It's not appropriate for us to possess those qualities internally somehow or within this church body and for those qualities never to go public and never to influence the way we live amongst others. God did not create us for ourselves. He did not save us ultimately for ourselves and to grow in these qualities so that we can really feel good about ourselves and we maintain a certain attitude and demeanor, but it never influences anyone else and it never goes public. He saved us. He created us, brought us into a relationship with Jesus Christ so we could serve as his representatives. We are to be who we are publicly. That's what he's called us to. And that's what verses 13 to 16 in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, are telling us. This is who you are. This is how you're supposed to live. These are the qualities you're supposed to put on in verses 3 to 12. And now here are those qualities, those virtues going public. This is what that looks like. And you can see him starting to, Jesus starting to shift this way in verses 11 and 12. Remember this? The last beatitude, all of a sudden you've got this very personal language there. Blessed are you. It hasn't been like this yet. There hasn't been a second person pronoun used yet. But all of a sudden, he shifts the language because he's preparing us to receive a very personal word to us about how we should carry these virtues and qualities out into the world. Blessed are you. These qualities are not to be abstract like some scientific experiment performed in a sterile lab. These qualities of the good life are to be lived out amongst others. You are the salt of the earth, right? He doesn't tell you to become the salt of the earth. He doesn't tell you to become the light of the world. Here's what you do to become these things. You are these things as you have the qualities that are described in verses 3 through 12. We already have these things, and so we are to be who we are and live these qualities out. Let me read verses 13 to 16 to you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are 
the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, before we kind of get to our main point this morning and tell you where we're going with this, let me just say, I know these These verses are very familiar to us, just like all of the Sermon on the Mount in a lot of ways, but these verses are very familiar. These metaphors, salt and light, are very familiar metaphors to us. And these metaphors have been used over the years to talk about how Christians should relate to the culture around them and to the world that they live in. And so people have used it. We are salt and light, and you'll hear that all the time. We're to try to influence the broader culture. Now, what's amazing to me, and I would have done the same thing up until I studied this in depth, what's amazing to me is how quickly we assume that we know what he's talking about when he says you are salt. What, we assume we know what he's getting at when he says you are light. And we, we know what salt is and we know what light is, and so we very quickly assume we know what Jesus means when he says this about us. And so we'll think, well, salt, I have salt in my house. I know what salt is, and salt is used as a preservative. It's used to give flavor to something. And so we take that, and when we say, okay, if that's true, then I know what it means to live in the broader culture as a Christian, because I know what salt is. And we'll do the same thing with light. And we, for some reason, we don't think, okay, Jesus isn't like pulling these metaphors out of thin air and just randomly coming up with these things. Jesus is taking both of these metaphors from the Old Testament. And both of these metaphors are used in significant ways in the Old Testament. And he's pulling the meaning from the Old Testament into these phrases, and he's weighting them with all of that background, and that says something significant to us in the way we should live our lives in the broader culture today. Both of these are used in the Old Testament Both of them are important and significant, and you need to understand at least a little bit of that background if you're going to understand how we live in the world more broadly. It's a classic example of sort of me-centered Bible reading to read this and think in terms of starting with me and my use of salt and my understanding of salt and not think, okay, how does the Bible talk about this? Are there other ways that the Bible describes salt and light that can be helpful to me in grasping what Jesus is getting at there. And that's what I want to do this morning. So this is our, our last message in the Sermon on the Mount for the time being. We're going to finish up our study of the introduction to the sermon here in verses uh, th- 3 through 16. Um, we're going to look at salt and light. And so as we do that this morning, here's what we're going to see. Two ways to intentionally influence for God's glory. Two ways to intentionally influence for God's glory. And the first one of those you can see on the screen is avoid worldly worthlessness. Avoid worldly worthlessness. So it is very natural to come to this and see Jesus saying, you are the salt of the earth, and to think to yourself, okay, what is he getting at by that? That's an appropriate question to ask, and we want to ask that question, but we need to understand how salt was used in the Old Testament 
if we're going to understand what Jesus is getting at when he says that here. Now, there are lots of different uses of salt in the Old Testament, so I'm not going to go through those. I'm not going to talk through. There's at least 11 of them. Okay, so we could get into a whole lot of detail. I'm not going to do that this morning. I just want to bring you right to the point here. Salt was used in the Old Testament. One of the key ways that it was used was in a covenant ratification ceremony. Or it was used on sacrifices that were offered, and the salt was used to show that this sacrifice was a part of me participating in the covenant. So it signified the reality of the covenant. When you ate salt with someone else, you were showcasing that we may have made a covenant together. And we're going to demonstrate that by putting salt on this food that we're eating together. Or when you had a sacrifice, you put salt on that sacrifice, not because it needed to help it burn better or something like that, but you put the salt on the sacrifice to say the reality of the covenant is present and it's here. And God's covenant, I am participating in that covenant and salt showcases that. Maybe a modern day equivalent to this would be something like a notary seal on a document. A notary seal on a document is present and it shows the official nature of that document. When you see that notary seal, you know that a binding agreement was made. Someone officially signed that document and it carries some weight to it. Salt worked that way in the Old Testament. Let me show you a couple of passages for this. Leviticus 2.13. Look how salt is described here. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant, you see that? With your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Another one in Numbers 18. All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. And so here's what Jesus is saying. When he says you are the salt of the earth, he's saying that by our presence as redeemed believers, And as we live out the qualities of verses 3 through 12, we confirm to the world the reality of God's covenant. We're like that salt that you put on the covenant that or on the sacrifice that shows that God has made a covenant or that these two people have made a covenant. And when we are sprinkled throughout the world, as we live out these qualities, we showcase the reality of God's kingdom and his covenant and his love, and his work. And we show that we have become citizens of that kingdom, and that there is a kingdom that you can enter into, and it has arrived through the work of Jesus Christ, and by our presence in the world, we showcase that. That's what it means to be salt of the earth. And so it's interesting here, our first way to influence is to avoid worldly worthlessness. And you can see this as you read the rest of verse 13. Look what Jesus says. You are the salt of the earth. Your presence here is to testify to the reality of God's love and his covenant. But if salt, if the covenant representative has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, 
salt and light, I think, are indicating the same things. There's quite a bit of overlap there. But the salt metaphor, Jesus has a little bit more of a negative take on this, right? And then the light metaphor is a little more positive. You're to let your light shine. Here, he's saying, don't let salt, don't let your saltiness, your salt lose its saltiness. Salt doesn't actually lose its flavor over time. But what does happen and how it can lose its flavor is when salt is mixed with other impurities, it no longer has its saltiness. And when it is mixed with other impurities, it's not good for anything anymore. That's the process that Jesus is describing here. It doesn't effectively do its work any longer when it gets mixed up with other impurities. And when that happens, Jesus says, it is good for nothing. Literally, that means it is worthless. It is, the word could also be translated foolish. It's good for nothing. So what he's saying here is, if we are God's covenant representatives on earth, if we showcase the reality of his covenant by living out the virtues in verses 3 to 12, then you and I have to maintain our distinctiveness. We have to maintain our representation of God in order to have influence in the world. Now, this is, this is always a careful tightrope to walk on, isn't it? I mean, it's almost like there's these competing visions in Scripture of the way we're supposed to live before the world. We're supposed to remain distinct and separate And yet, at the same time, God is saying, you are my covenant representatives. You're supposed to have close contact with the world because you're to represent me to the world. Salt only impacts and changes meat when it touches it and when it's in close proximity to it. And so you have to have both there. You have to be distinct, but you also have to have close proximity And I think Christians have struggled over the years in significant ways with how to do this, how to have both distinctiveness and also to have close proximity to the the culture and the world and the people in the world and to have an influence on the people in the world for for good. And people, Christians, groups of Christians tend to go to one side or the other, right? There's, There's... separating away from people in the world and and the culture in significant ways and withdrawing from the culture. And there's also, on the other side, cultural accommodation, where I lose my saltiness and I become so much like the world that I can't have an influence. And as I was sitting here thinking about that and what Jesus says here, it seems to me that the way to sort of thread that needle is to cultivate the virtues and the Beatitudes, Because when you internally grow in these character qualities and when you more naturally become a peacemaker and someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness and when you are a person who is merciful and who's poor in spirit, that will allow you to live and work in close proximity to people of the world while at the same time maintaining distinctiveness from the world. If you're someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, and that's not just a show, it's not just a list of things that you do or don't do, it's actually who you are at the deepest level internally. When you are that type of person, 
then you can maintain your distinctiveness while living and working with unbelievers and having a significant influence in the world. And so be who you are, grow in virtue and character, and you will avoid the worthlessness that happens here when you lose your saltiness as a covenant representative. So that's our first way to influence intentionally influenced for God's glory. The second one, now he, he turns to a little more positive instruction here, and this is where you actually get a command. Avoid worldly worthlessness, maintain your distinctiveness, but also purposefully pursue good. So now he turns to the second metaphor of light. Verse 14, you are the light of the world, and I think we want to ask the same question. What's he talking about here? And he says, you are the light of the world. And we so quickly think, I know what he means by this because I turn a light on in my house every morning and the sun comes up and I know what light is. And I even understand the images that he's giving here of not putting it under a basket. I get it. But again, you have to ask, where is he getting this metaphor from? And Matthew has already tipped us off as to where Jesus is getting this metaphor from. Look one chapter back to chapter four. Verse 12, it's no accident that Matthew says this here. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. It's not accidental that Jesus uses this metaphor here. It's not accidental that Matthew writes this. And Matthew is referring, of course, back to Isaiah chapter 9. And that Christmas passage in Isaiah chapter 9, he quotes verses 1 and 2 here. So as he does this, who or what is the light in Isaiah chapter 9? It's the Messiah. And that's important to keep in mind. It's the Messiah who is the light. And so Matthew takes that passage and he says, Jesus is that Messiah. He's the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, the promise to these regions that they were in darkness, but a light would dawn on them. Jesus is that fulfillment And he has come specifically here to the people of Israel. It's important too. And he's come to them because of sin, and he's bringing God's covenant blessings to them. That's what it means that he is the light. And so Matthew presents Jesus as the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, the light. So when Jesus uses that image here in Matthew 5, 16, 14 through 16, There's no doubt that he's thinking of the book of Isaiah, and he's thinking of the way Isaiah has used this metaphor and is presenting light. But you'll notice in Matthew 4 and in Isaiah, the Messiah is the light, but in Matthew 5, what does Jesus say? You are the light. And so it's not exactly the same there, and that's what I want to trace out here for you, and I want to show you how it comes to be transferred to us as the light. Now, in the book of Isaiah, there's 
There's an entire theology of light that is used in the book of Isaiah. It's really fascinating to trace this through. And we won't go into every detail, but I do want to quickly walk you through some passages. And I want to show you how this develops, because I think all of this is what Jesus has in mind when he's talking about us as the light of the world. So you started in Isaiah chapter 9. You're welcome to turn with me to some of these passages and sort of follow along. But Isaiah 42 is where we're going to go next. So in Isaiah 9, the Messiah brings the light. He is the light. Now in Isaiah 42, in Isaiah 9, he's the light to Israel. Now in Isaiah 42, the servant of Yahweh, who of course we would know would be the same person as the Messiah. But in Isaiah 42, the servant of Yahweh comes and he's a light not just to Israel, but he's a light to the Gentiles, to the nations. It's on the screen here. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand, speaking to a servant, and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. You can see those themes of covenant and light brought together there. But Gentiles will receive the blessing of the work of the servant when he comes, and he will come as a light. So this continues. Isaiah 49. I can read this to you. You can flip over there. But you see this again. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. You see it again in Isaiah 51. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. And so you can see this over and over again. The Messiah, the servant, is the light, and he's going to come and bring light to the nations. That's pretty clear so far in the book of Isaiah. But as you progress through the book of Isaiah, what's interesting is there's a subtle turn that happens in Isaiah 58. Now keep, up, keep in mind, up until this point, the servant and the Messiah has been the light. But now in Isaiah 58, a little turn begins to happen. So in this passage, God is telling the nation of Israel what they should do as a response to his coming and his salvation and his covenant love. This is what he wants from them, Okay. Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. And he's speaking to Israel. And your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. So up until now, the Messiah has been the light. But now he says, look, Israel, there's going to come a point in time when you are going to be the light. And how are you going to be the light? 
They're doing all of these good works. All of this culminates in Isaiah chapter 60. And this is where it comes together. Isaiah chapter 60, it all comes together here, and this is the future restoration of Israel through the Messiah. That's being described here. And so you've got Israel's final destiny in the Messiah's work, and the Messiah's light is shining on Israel, and it's also the light is going forth to the nations. Look at this, Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, speaking to Israel, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So, all of that is in the background. When Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14 says, you are the light of the world. All of that factors in. It's rooted in the book of Isaiah and it's rooted in the work of the Messiah who comes as a light to the people in darkness. He shines upon them, brings salvation to them. Then he turns around and enables them through his covenant and his work to be influencers and enables them to be a light among the nations as they represent him and do good to those around them as we saw in Isaiah 58. So is it any wonder that Jesus uses this metaphor here? I mean, this is rich and full and powerful. And he's not just looking out at the sun setting and going, oh, you guys are the light of the world. No, it's all rooted in his work and in his covenant, and in the light that he brings to the nations. And so then he says, you are being sent out as my covenant representatives to proclaim what I have done and to do good works so that others will come and see the light that I have brought, and they will glorify God as well. So salt and light are not just simple metaphors. They are meant here to motivate us and compel us to be who we are as kingdom disciples. This is what we are called to. This is natural for us. And so these two metaphors kind of intersect with this idea of being covenant representatives. We're sent out into the world to testify to the light of the Messiah and to do good works so that others can glorify him as well. So that's the picture that's given here. Now, I want to turn this a little bit, and I want to think about some practical ramifications of these, these metaphors for us, ways to intentionally influence. There's a lot of these. You could think about these metaphors. What, what's, the, what's the implication of being a covenant representative who does good work so that others can glorify God? I mean, my goodness. It's almost endless. But let's just think for a few minutes here practically about what this looks like. First of all, you are not salt or light alone by yourself. We tend to read these, at least I do, I tend to read this and think, okay, I'm supposed to be influential, and I tend to immediately think about personal application and how I can be salt and light in the world. Maybe some of you have already been thinking about that. 
And I think that's natural, and there's probably some place for that. But the reason I say you are not salt and you are not light alone is because the word you in verses 13 and 14 is plural. He's not talking to each individual disciple, although there certainly are ramifications for each individual disciple. He's speaking to the community of disciples together. We're all in this representation, this covenant representation. We're doing this thing together. We are salt and we are light together. One author that I read on this called the church an alternative society. And I I do think that's a helpful way to say it. We are a society of people, kingdom citizens, who bring our own culture into the world together. No person can adequately live out these responsibilities alone by themselves. You can't do it. And that's why each person needs a church body and a group of believers to align themselves with and to serve with and to be salt and light with. One of the greatest things you can do to be an influencer in the world is to join a local church and consistently be at your local church to worship with other believers. Now, I realize I'm talking this morning to people who came despite the snow, right? I get it. (laughs) I understand. But we maintain our distinctiveness as we come here together And we learn about what it means to be salt and light. We learn about the covenant that God has made with us. We learn about who we are together in the community, the body gathering. We maintain our distinctiveness, and then we are better equipped and better able to go out and be influencers in the culture around us and in our workplace and in our neighborhoods. It's no wonder that the church lacks influence when we don't show up to church and we don't align ourselves with the body and commit and say, this is where I gather. These are my people and I'm in this with them for the long haul. It's no wonder that we're not influencers in the culture and in the world. When we're out there by ourselves trying to do it, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You, plural, are the light of the world. Now, the second thing, practical ramification about this is, I think these images, is, they, they show us that we do not exist for ourselves on earth. Both of these images, salt and light, exist for something else, for someone else. They're used for a greater end. And what I take away from that is your life is not yours. My life is not mine. And that's one of the hardest perspectives to sort of shift into. It's easy to say. It's very natural to say that as a, as a Bible-taught Christian. I know that, right? My life is not mine. But it's, it's so difficult to actually function that way and actually think that way, particularly when things don't go the way I want them to. We are told all the time that your life is yours. You've only got one life. So squeeze everything you can out of it. Get all you can. This is your chance to enjoy your life. Do the things you most want to do. Even the idea of a bucket list can sort of tend into this mentality. I've only got a little bit of time. 
I got to do everything I want to do while I'm here on earth. As if it was your life, as if it's my life to live. Salt and light exist for someone else. My existence doesn't find its apex in me and in my desires. And I think what Jesus is saying is you actually live the good life and you live well when you live for other people. When you exist and you, are, you have been designed to live for the good of others. And then the last practical ramification that I'll say about salt and light, again, there's a million more we could talk about. But there's a sort of a paradigm that I think is really helpful, um, a phrase used to sort of summarize the way we are to live in the world. I read this in a book. Um, the book is called To Change the World. Um, and the paradigm that he says is the biblical paradigm for Christians existing in the world, maintaining their distinctiveness, but impacting the world around them. He calls it faithful presence. And I like that. I like that phrase. And I think that really gets at the heart of what salt and light are, these metaphors. I mean, think about it. Salt was present in a sacrifice to show the reality of the covenant, show the permanence of the covenant. And I think that idea of faithful, consistent presence is exactly what Jesus is getting at here in the salt and light metaphors. This is what we're called to, faithful, consistent presence. We're to do good as we're present. And so what does that mean for us? It means we start where we are. Where are you present? A lot of times we read the salt and light metaphors and we tend to think uh, very, very nationally, right? Like I think politically. Christians are called to be salt and light politically. Yes, we tend to think celebrities, oh, if so-and-so would just get saved and speak out, man, then we would have an influence, right? You know, we tend to think in sort of these big ways of politicians and celebrities and, you know, people of massive cultural influence. But Jesus is saying here, you are the salt, you are the light, so start where you are, live faithfully present where you are. Don't think that you have to have a massive platform to be salt and light. You will be salt and light as you exist in the present in a consistent and faithful manner. And so to be faithfully present means that you extend God's blessings to others as you live and work among them. It means I try to do good where I am, in my home, in my work, in my community. I want to be faithfully present there. And whatever level of influence God gives me, I'm going to be salt and light there. And so the question is, are we present or are we absent from the places that God has put us? We can't exercise influence without being present, without being in close proximity to those around us. Ultimately, I think this idea of faithful presence means we imitate God's sacrificial love toward us, and we sort of bend that out into the world. God has been faithfully present with us, hasn't he? He came as a man to earth, took on the form of a man, and died on the cross for us, 
and dwells with us by the Holy Spirit. He has been faithfully present to us. Now, certainly we can't match the incarnation. It's a one-time event. But I do think as Jesus was sent, so send I you. There is a way that you and I can be faithfully present in the culture and in the world. We have received his sacrificial covenant love, and as his covenant representatives, we display that to others in our personal relationships. And we display that by certainly deeds, but by word as well, by faithfully preaching and sharing and representing the gospel of grace that we have received. So be faithfully present to those around you as you are salt and light and have an influence where God has put you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so inadequate to be salt and light. We certainly cannot be influential on our own, but by your grace, by even the motivation provided by these images, we pray that you would compel us to be faithfully present with those around us to intentionally think about how we can extend your blessings to others, how we can extend your blessings by doing good, by being just, by being peacemakers, and how we can extend your blessings by speaking the truth of the gospel into the darkness of this world and of people's lives. We thank you so much for being faithfully present with us, and we pray that that reality would shape us and change us and cause us to be who we are in this world. Thank you for your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.